From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to the China in the World podcast. I'm Paul Hanley, the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center here in Beijing, and today we're fortunate to have with us Marwan Mwasher, Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment. Marwan oversees the Middle East program in Washington D.C. and the Carnegie Center in Beirut. Previously, he served as Jordan's Deputy Prime Minister. A foreign minister between 2002 and 2004, and Jordanian ambassador to the United States. His long and distinguished career in diplomacy has also included opening Jordan's first embassy in Israel in 1995. He has experience at the World Bank before joining the Carnegie Endowment、uh, in 2011.、Uh, Marwan has、uh, incomparable expertise in the intricacies of Middle Eastern politics and foreign policy, and we're lucky to have him. Not only on the podcast, but he's been visiting Beijing this week as part of our Carnegie Global Dialogue on China Middle East issues,、uh, talking about the changing dynamics in the Middle East and how China fits into all of that. Thank you very mar- much, Marwan, for being with us this week and for being on the podcast. Thank you.、Uh, I want to jump in and talk a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of the regional transformations in the Middle East. Uh, it's always been a complicated region, as we know. This decade has seemed particularly dynamic. We've seen the collapse of traditional authoritarian regimes in the Arab Spring, a development which has contributed to the current crises in Syria and the rise of ISIS, and I think whose implications are still unfolding before our eyes. You have talked about what you describe as the two shocks that have really impacted. The landscape, both in terms of the politics and the economics, and on the governance side, over the past decade. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, you, what you describe a little bit about what you mean by the two shocks. The first shock,、uh, of course, took place in 2011. Everybody knows about it now. It was prematurely called the Arab Spring, but it was a direct result of people not accepting authoritarian rule anymore. And I think、uh, the old Social contracts between governments and their people just collapsed in 2011, when governments could not uh, uh, deliver on basic services and jobs that they deliver,、uh, promised their people, while at the same time insisting that people don't have a meaningful say in decision making. Some countries were able to、uh, really survive that shock、uh, because of oil, mainly because of financial resources uh, that. Uh, uh, Allowed inefficient economic and political systems to、uh, be sustained、uh, because of oil. In 2014, the Middle East has experienced another shock, which is the decline of oil prices beyond below 100 dollars a barrel. That has meant that oil-producing countries could no longer be able to sustain their inefficient systems through、uh, through oil, and oil-importing countries could also. Uh, were not able to sustain their inefficient systems through grants they received from 
oil producing countries or through remittances of uh, their citizens working in uh, Gulf countries. So the Middle East finds itself today in a situation where the old order has died, Mm. Uh, but a new order is not yet able to be born. Why? The old order has established bureaucracies, layers of political elites, business elites that were beneficiaries of that patronage system and moving from a patronage system to a more merit-based system is proving to be difficult uh, and with a lot of resistance from these layers. And this is going to be, I think, uh, uh, a factor defining uh, the Arab world for some time to come. You've described this model that has existed as a rentier model in your foreign affairs article in October, November the next Arab uprising, and I'd encourage our listeners to read that article, The Collapse of Authoritarianism in the Middle East. You talk about, in that article, you talk about Tunisia as one country that has been able to move beyond that and has had some success, not out of the woods yet, you'd say in your article, but why is Tunisia a little different? Tunisia understood that uh, the first... uh uh, you know, thing that must be done is to allow is to agree on the rules of the game, and so right after the revolution, they elected an assembly that for three years nego- negotiated a new social contract among the different components of society, and today you have a constitution in Tunisia where the secular and the religious forces agreed not only to coexist but agreed on the rules of the game that no one force uh, can be allowed to dictate its lifestyle on the other forces in society, where women were given full rights, and where the principle of the peaceful alteration of power uh, became enshrined in the constitution. Uh, That has all been achieved and proved, in my view, that democracy and Islam can coexist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tunisia, as you said, is not out of the woods yet. They still have huge economic and security challenges to overcome, but they put themselves on the road to democratization in a relatively short period of time. Mm -hmm. No one should expect uh, this transformation phase that uh, the Arab world is going through to unfold in 10 years. Mm -hmm. This is going to be decades, but I think Tunisia so far is leading the way. Of course, countries in the Middle East are, they're part of a region, but they're all unique and have their own unique challenges. But what can be taken from the Tunisian model that other countries could begin to do now to move from that old order to this new order that you talk about? Again, the first uh, lesson is that democracy and Islam can and do coexist. The second lesson is that uh, before you start embarking on uh, uh, you know, uh, institution building, you need to define the rules of the game. And the rules of the game have been defined in a way where today all components of society in Tunisia are assured uh, that their rights uh, are protected and that they are protected by a constitution, not by a divine document, not by... Uh, so all the relig- religious and secular forces un- agree in Tunisia today that the overall framework for their activity is the constitution and no other document. Mm-hmm. These are huge lessons that mm-hmm. uh, can be learned by the rest of the region. It is true that Tunisia has its own set of characteristics that might not be able to be emulated in other parts of the Arab world. Still, these are lessons that people can really 
uh, draw from mm-hmm. as they uh, go through their own process of uh, uh, transformation. At the uh, Carnegie uh, Global Conference in Beirut, uh, which you and Ma, our colleague Maha put on, uh, during your panel, one of the questions that came up from the audience is, why can't countries in the Mi- Middle East simply follow the Chinese model? The Chinese model has been one where there hasn't been political reform. They have a repressive authoritarian system, yet they have been able to experience incredible economic growth over a sustained period. How do you respond to that question? Well, in fact, the Arab countries, many Arab countries have followed the Chinese model for the last 40 years, uh, where economic reform has been attempted without political reform in countries like Jordan or Egypt or Tunisia, uh, in uh, none of these uh, countries could make it, uh, neither in economic reform nor uh, in political reform. And the reason has been that without developing a system of checks and balances uh, to make sure that when abuses happen, and they will happen as you undergo economic liberalization, that there is a system in place to check these abuses, that there is a strong parliament, that there is a free press, that there is an independent judiciary, etc. And in the absence of these strong institutions, what has happened in the Arab world is that economic reform uh, basically has led to a very small layer of people benefiting from this reform rather than the general population. And corruption skyrocketed. Mm. So today, most people in the region associate economic reform not with the betterment of their own situation, but rather with corruption. Mm. Uh, This is why I have argued uh, and still do that economic reform in the region without political reform Mm. is not going to uh, succeed. A lot of our discussions this week in looking at the Middle East has has centered on the, the, the role of two outside global powers, the United States uh, and China. And of course, the U.S. has been very involved in the region uh, over a long period of time. The uh, Middle East, in in many ways, is is a new theater for for China. Let me start with the U.S., because here we see President Trump, um, in terms of his administration's approach to the region, really doubling down on key allies in the region, Israel, Obviously, the support there and the decision to move the U.S. Embassy uh, to Jerusalem, the decision recently to recognize Israel's uh, ownership of the Golan Heights. Um, There seems to be, you know, doubling down also on the alliance with uh, Saudi Arabia, unconditional support there to uh, MBS. We saw that play out when uh, the uh, journalist from Saudi Arabia, Khashoggi, was was killed. Um, Real unconditional support, uh, unyielding support to Saudi Arabia. And then a much more confrontational approach uh, to Iran just recently, labeling the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. Um, Some have described it as a rebalancing, a U.S. rebalancing in the region. And I wanted to get your perspective on whether you see this as being Uh, effective, uh, beneficial to the Middle East region. And also, you have served in a number of administrations, and I have served in a number, uh, you've served during a number of U.S. administrations. And I wanted to get a sense from you where you see U.S. policy has been effective and where has it been unsuccessful in your perspective? 
There is no question that the U.S. image, uh, in particularly in the Arab world, is a negative one today, and that is because of two main reasons. The perception that the U.S. is totally on the side of Israel in the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict is one major reason, and of course the invasion of Iraq is the other one. Strong U.S. intervention in the region, particularly when it is seen as uh, siding with one, one party, uh, and not with all others, has not been beneficial. I think we have seen the U.S. at its best when it attempted to bring peace to the region, and despite the fact that it did not uh, claim neutrality uh, in this, it still uh, tried very hard to bring the Palestinians and the Israelis together, first with George uh, Bush Sr. and then with President Clinton. And the two sides, as a result of that effort, came very close to an agreement. Uh, what we are seeing uh, uh, the U.S. do now is take black and white positions, frankly. Uh, several are against international law, like the decision on the Golan Heights, for example, and uh, attempting to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict so far by taking sides that appear to be totally uh, on the side of one party, which is Israel. That is not going, that is not beneficial, and it is not going to result mm. in any agreement. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, China. You've been here this week. China has been uh, increasing its uh, presence in the Middle East region, uh, in particular on commercial and economic projects and arrangements, uh, and also uh, around the issue of energy. China imports, half of its uh, imports come from the Middle East region. They have managed to have comprehensive strategic partnerships with regional rivals like Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, they have close relations with uh, Israel um, and a strategic partnership with Iran. Um, many see that as somehow um, incompatible, that there would be tension between having close relations with those rival countries. The Middle East is, is growing very important uh, to China especially around its Belt and Road Initiative. How do you see, uh, as someone from the region who has served in senior levels of uh, government, how do you see China's role in the Middle East? China, of course, is a newcomer to the region and as a great uh, now economic uh, and a political power, it is trying still to flex its economic muscles, if you want, and offer a lot of economic incentives to the region while at the same time assuming uh, what it perceives as a neutral stand towards uh, political uh, problems of the region and trying to maintain good relations with all. It's I trying think, to stay above the political yes, fray, I mean, the political it is trying, it, Indeed, it is trying to stay above the political fray. I think the challenge for China as it deepens its economic interests in the region is to uh, still be able to do that while avoiding the political tensions in a region that, of course, is highly political and highly charged uh, uh, with a lot of issues that uh, uh, are not solved yet. And I, I think that is a challenge that China still has to address. Uh, China has been much uh, better articulating what it does not want because mm -hmm. it does not want to repeat sort of the mistakes of the U.S. and Russia in having a very strong footprint in the Middle East. Uh, and it has, I think, articulated that very clearly. It needs now to articulate what it does want uh, 
from the region in a clear way. One of the things it says it does want, and it's very clear about that, we heard that from the special envoy to the Middle East this week at the foreign ministry is, it wants good relations with all countries in the Middle East. Um, and it wants those countries to benefit through its Belt and Road projects. Can't China have that, good relations with all countries? Is that something that is sustainable from a Chinese perspective? I think the intention is admirable. Whether it, uh, China can do that or not is still really an open question. It will be difficult to maintain a sort of a, a very neutral position. Uh, I uh, remember a time when Turkey uh, in 2002 also announced uh, a policy of zero problems with its neighbors and were able for some time to carry that policy. Today, Turkey has a problem with all its neighbors. Mm. And so whether China can be able to avoid uh, being sucked in uh, the problems of the region is still an open question. Well, that's a very interesting point, and I want to thank you very much for joining our podcast this week and for spending time with us here in Beijing at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you. I had a, a very great and uh, educational time as well. Thanks, Marwan. Thank you for joining the China and the World podcast. Be sure to check out more content from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center on our website.